0: worked so far, but we're not out
1: yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Scaling Frequency open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Caliban, and I want to remind you that although poker does have advantages over chess, Pinochle is the deadliest game of them all. <laughs> I'm joined on this episode by David R. George III. David is the author of many Star Trek novels, including stories set in the original series era, Deep Space Nine, and the Lost Era adventures of the Enterprise B under Captain John Harriman. His most recent novel, The Long Mirage, is a DS9 novel, and joins his other two DS9 novels, Sacraments of Fire and Ascendance. He's also a former contributor to Star Trek Magazine, and along with Eric Stilwell, wrote the story for the first season Voyager episode, Prime Factors. Dave, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Permission to come aboard? Granted. Today we'll be talking about the Corbomite Maneuver, the 10th episode of the first season of Star Trek, the original series, which was, as we'll discuss today, the first production episode of Trek's inaugural season, having been shot almost a year after the show's second pilot, where no man has gone before. And as such, it's an episode that has a very different feel than a lot of classic Trek episodes. Uh, It features many on-screen firsts in the canon, many technical elements that were still being ironed out. Uh, It also features Corbomite, a sort of -of get-out-of-jail-free plot device that also appears in the second season episode, The Deadly Years. All of that, and Clint Howard debut. Uh But we can, <laughs> t- we can talk about Clint a little later in the show. Uh, first, I'd like to know your backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan? What's your history with Trek?
2: You know, I grew up watching Star Trek. My dad was a big science fiction fan, uh, and so he uh, introduced me to Star Trek, introduced me to all sorts of science fiction, and I just sort of like that uh, from the beginning, and, and, and also um, the space program, you know, the space shuttle, all of these things were intriguing to me, you know, in the real world, and, and the science fiction just complemented that. So um, I watched Star Trek for a long time. <laughs> I have been, I still watch Star Trek.
1: Sure, yeah, of course.
2: And actually, cor- the Corvomine Maneuver, as it turns out, happens, just happens to be the very first episode of Star Trek I ever saw.
1: Really? Okay, cool. I'm always fascinated by people who become astronauts or scientists, uh, you know, based on their inspiration, you know, seeing the intrepid heroes of uh, Trek who are warriors, but they are, you know, scientists and explorers as well. And the way that that in- inspires people to do stuff it inspired me to make an Internet podcast, but, you know, to each their <laughs> own. <laughs> I've, I've also been fascinated um, by the character of John Harriman that you've written a lot about um, and not solely because he's played uh, by the affable Alan Ruck. Uh, Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, of course. Uh, But when we first encounter him, he's fairly unsure of himself, and he doesn't seem like somebody who can handle the command of the Enterprise. Um, And his career as captain of the Excelsior-class Enterprise remains fairly unexplored. There's only a couple novels and short stories to feature him. I think you're probably the resident expert on him. Can you talk about what you wanted to accomplish with him as a character?
2: Oh, absolutely. And what I wanted to accomplish was very clear in my mind, too, because watching him... In his first appearance in the movie Generations, mm-hmm. he was absolutely unsure of himself, and I don't think that was so much a product of conscious writing as sort of the artifact of what of wanting to make Captain Kirk look better. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and I I don't I, I didn't really like that myself, just as a fan. Uh, it, it's perfectly fine to to show that. Captain Kirk is is a great and wonderful leader, but you don't have to do that. I don't think at the expense of other characters. And they say it may it may not have been a conscious thing, just sort of an artifact of what they were trying to do. But for me, sort of trying to look at that from a, a realistic perspective, it seemed odd because you would think somebody who's going to command a starship. Somebody's going to command a destroyer today in the, in the, in some navy in the world is going to be somebody who's confident, who has capabilities, who has abilities, who can do the job, and and it's not the kind of job that I think allows for a great deal of um, trepidation. I mean, there's it's fine to self to have, have self-examination. That's something you want in a leader, but you don't want a leader who is not confident in their own ability. So I really wanted to (laughs) explore how Harriman could have behaved the way he did in generations and yet still be somebody who could do that job, who was worthy of who had earned his place aboard the Enterprise as its captain. So I really, really wanted to to look at that. I mean, I've got a whole story that... uh, uh, apart from that, but that was a really strong aspect of it for me.
1: I'm not sure if this exists um, in any of the the written works about him, but I think um, the Alan Rock the actor, sort of speculated that he, it was possible that it was sort of a like a political appointment, and it was sort of like a stepping stone for him to go on to be like a big figure, sort of how like, you know, my dad got me the job, like that kind of thing.
2: Well, I think that that has... There's absolutely an element I played uh, 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 with that, and I think that really originated with Peter David, who wrote a novel called *The Captain's Daughter*, and that had Harriman in it. And, and it was more a sort of a well, I mean, it was it was partially a Demora story, story, uh, but it was it was a largely an Enterprise B story, and it did talk a little bit about. Harriman's father, and there w- was some interaction, and you could see that they did not have a good relationship. Mm. That the father was somebody who would look to, even though he was uh, the the elder Harriman was uh, established in his own right and and a, a power within Starfleet. Mm. He would also look to his son to continue that, as not so much part of what his son wanted, but as part of what the father wanted to establish or to continue the father's legacy. Uh so there's that that familial stuff uh pressure that was uh, associated with the younger Harriman and I sort of ran with that in uh Serpents Among the Ruins which mm-hmm. it really is I mean it's a Harriman and Sulu novel uh but it it deals a lot with that with that relationship and how The the younger Harriman was pressured by the elder Harriman to to sort of advance in Starfleet, and and the elder Harriman opened some doors that maybe wouldn't have opened so quickly. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to establish the fact that the younger Harriman was absolutely capable of doing that job. And any sort of hesitation, any trepidation we saw from him, any lack of confidence wasn't so much because he didn't believe in his own abilities, but it was because he was pushed forward by his father and still had an antagonistic relationship with him. And so there were, was a lot of uh, other, other details in that, uh, that really contributed to his behavior that we saw in generations.
1: Sure. And it was his first day on the job.
2: Yeah, and it was first day. Yeah, and everything uh, was going to be back on the ship on, next. Yeah, no, fall, no, like no it, torpedoes to
1: and anything like that. Right. right yeah, uh, I I really love seeing other captains of other enterprises. That when we get to see glimpses of them, like uh, Rachel Garrett or uh, you know even Robert April, and the way that cl- clearly Starfleet officers are intrepid and wise, but the captains of the Enterprise seem to possess some extra measure of greatness that qualifies them. And th- you know, there's something a little beyond the normal Starfleet captain. And I think it's cool to see a guy like John Heron. Harriman earned that quality, you know, and develop that assurance as he goes on.
2: One of the things that I liked about the Harriman character, at least the way I saw him and the way that I wrote him, was that although he was all of those things you just mentioned, a little bit of cut above, and and he earned and deserved the enterprise captaincy, he wasn't the same as Kirk, and he wasn't the same as Rachel Garrett, and he wasn't the same as Jean-Luc Picard. He was a little bit different, and I've written him in a couple of novels now, uh, and actually at the end of the first novel, I had him in Serpents Among the Ruins. He actually steps down from command of the Enterprise, Mm -hmm. and that's not something I think you could ever see Captain Kirk doing willingly, (laughs) or, or Captain Picard or anybody else. I mean, Rachel Garrett's taken her ship back into the lion's den. In uh, in yesterday's Enterprise, and is probably quite likely going to die, and does die, but she's not stepping down. She's doing what she has to do. But Harriman is a, a different sort of cat, and he's he he he's going on with his life in a different direction. And it's not that he doesn't love the Enterprise or his crew or Starfleet or any of that. He just has other things going on too. And and I liked exploring those. Different sorts of motivation for an enterprise captain, for for any starship captain,
1: right? I, I should mention too, um, in the short story "Full Circle" um, by Scott Pearson, who's a former guest on the show. Uh, Harriman is like a admiral; he's uh, the sort of the liaison to the Starfleet Corps of Engineer, and he basically steps down from that job as well. He hands it over to Montgomery Scott, uh, right. saying that you know he, he'd be a better sort of fit for the job. So, yeah, it's that's an interesting quality to have from somebody who's in command, like the ability to be retiring and the ability to you know understand uh, not just the capabilities of your crew, but what, what you can handle too, or, or where you can best uh, be used by an organization. And,
2: and also what you want for your life too, because we saw, I think with Captain Kirk, certainly. Mm-hmm. And with Jean-Luc Picard and other enterprise captains, we saw a measure of loneliness. yeah They, they, Captain Kirk is married to enterprise. Yeah, we yeah. see that from the beginning and it, Although he did have his love interests throughout the show, you got that that sense from him that he was a loner that he 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 has he was not ready to give up command of the ship because he that was his life. but Harriman, when he steps down from the command of the enterprise, it's largely for love, and it's a a, a romantic relationship he's been involved in for a while, and he just makes the decision after a lot of things that have gone, on, some of them involving his relationship with his father that it's time for him to do this most, right at that moment, most important thing in his life, which is be with the woman that he loves. Right. And uh, that does continue, and Scott has uh, his wife, Amina, in in full circle. And uh, I wrote him later than that in an episode, uh, an episode, <laughs> uh, a novel called One Constant Star, in which he is... Uh, and he's an admiral, still in Starfleet, and he's still married to the same woman, and he's got other responsibilities, and he actually uh, has to get involved in uh, an adventure to rescue Damora Sulu and her crew. But he's still in Starfleet. He's just doing... He's, he's, he's moved around. He's doing the things that he wants to do, as long as it also lets him be with the woman that he loves. Right. So I like explore, So he's not... He's an exception to the sort of Enterprise Captain Rule of somebody who's a loner, who's somebody who has to just separate out emotionally everything else from the command of that ship. He's not like that. And I, I enjoyed seeing a different take on that.
1: Yeah, that's really that's really great. Uh, well, we should be talking about gener- uh, generations as much as we're talking about Harriman. Uh, uh, but we're not. We're talking about uh, the Corbin Might Maneuver. Can you tell me why you wanted to discuss this episode?
2: but in small part because it was the first episode I ever saw just drew me right into Star Trek. Yeah, sure. But also, I think because it's an absolutely underappreciated episode, and it's also a bit of a different sort of Star Trek episode. You already touched on this in your intro, in that it was the very first episode ever produced during the regular run of this, the series. They right. produced the Cage pilot with Jeffrey Hunter as Captain Pike, mm-hmm. and then they mm-hmm. produced the second pilot where No Man Has Gone Before with William Shatner introducing Captain Kirk. But once the show was bought, this was the first episode ever produced. They didn't even, as you said, air it until number 10 in the first season. Yeah. So it doesn't really stand out, at least from the viewpoint of how it aired, as a first episode. But if you watch it, there are a number of things in the episode that really make you think, oh, yeah, 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 I can see. that's They're trying to establish something that, Now, 50 years later, everybody takes for granted.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. It's amazing how they already sort of knew, I think, where they were going. Yeah, you know, maybe somebody's shirt is a different color, but they certainly had a strong idea for what the series was going to be going forward. Um, so, we are talking about The Corbine M- Maneuver. Uh, it first aired on November 10th in 1966. It was written by Jerry Soule, who also wrote The Side of Paradise and Whom Gods Destroy for the original series. It was directed by Joseph Sargent, who is a veteran director of many episodes of the original series, and he also directed episodes of Bonanza, uh, Gunsmoke, The Fugitive, Man from U.N.C.L.E., a lot of shows at the time. The Star date for for this episode is one five one two point two, and it's interesting in this episode that star dates really get uh, a going over because we sort of follow the action minute by minute, sometimes literally. Uh, so we get to see those kind of tick up. Uh, and this episode was also nominated for a Hugo Award in nineteen sixty seven for best dramatic presentation. Your mission, if you can, is to give us a twenty five word synopsis of the Corbomite Maneuver.
2: Wow, I didn't know there was going to be homework.
1: Yes, there is a test.
2: <laughs> The Enterprise, for the first time, meets the unknown and deals with it from a perspective of diplomacy over violence. That, to me, is really something that uh, that episode established. Now, I know, again, it didn't air till number 10 in the first season, but it was that first episode produced, and they really, really focused on the fact that Kirk, especially, in command of the ship, is absolutely calm through this... Encounter possibly very dangerous with an unknown and ex- apparently powerful alien force, and he, he doesn't panic. He doesn't. He does. He, his first move is not to fire phasers. It's let's talk. Let's right. uh, or let's stay here. Let's wait and talk amongst ourselves. We can't get them to talk to us. Let's talk amongst ourselves and see what we want to do about this. Sure. Nobody's firing phasers. Nobody's. Nobody's. Uh, wanting to 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 engage in unnecessary violence it's not why they're out there and I think that's really really well established in this episode
1: sure uh, that was great. I think you, you nailed the synopsis and a little bit of commentary at the end, but that was good.
2: Well, uh, uh, yeah, well, don't want to limit me to 25 words. I'm writing 135,000 <laughs> word novels. I yeah, do what I sure. do.
1: Uh, as we mentioned, this was the first episode to be produced in regular production, and as such, it does contain a lot of firsts. That is, things that we're technically seeing for the first time out. Um, clearly, we see them uh, when The Mantrap airs as the first um, sort of episode that was premiered. Um, but this is the first time we see a lot of these elements outside of the first two pilots that were produced. Uh, here's a list of some of those elements. Uh, it's the first appearance of Dr. McCoy and his first utterance of his uh, variation of his catchphrase about being a doctor or not being a doctor. Uh, it's the first appearance of Ahura as communications officer and the first time her line hailing frequencies open is heard. Uh, she's also in a gold command uniform for this episode. Um, she's also seen in gold for MUDS women. And the man trap, of course, is the first time we see her in red. Uh, it's the first appearance of Yeoman Rand. And it's the first time we hear the sound effects that are usually under bridge scenes. The first time the phasers are fired. It's the first appearance of the black collared tunics that are the main uniforms. It's also the first appearance of skirts and looser necklines on the female uniforms. I think Sally Keller was in slacks for uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Uh, She was. Speaking of uniforms, it's the first appearance of red shirts, though none of them die in this episode. Uh, (laughs) Sulu's in gold uh, after appearing in blue as an astrophysicist in uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Uh, it's the first time that we hear the famous opening narration by Shatner over the credits, and it's the first time we hear the Spock say, fascinating, and I think the story behind that is that the script originally called for fear from Spock uh, when he sees uh, you know, the view screen. Um, I believe it's when he sees uh, Bailock, but the director, Sargent, suggested, don't, no, don't sell it. You know, give him nothing. Just give us uh, you know, no emotion and, and fascinating instead, and of course that went on to, to really define him as a character.
2: One thing that Spock also does in that episode that's sort of interesting that ties into what you're talking about is at one point Kirk is asking for advice and Spock doesn't really give him something and Kirk takes him to task for it and Spock starts to apologize. He starts (laughs) to say, I'm sorry, but he stops himself. Um, Almost like he's the Fonz and just can't get out the words. But (laughs) it's clearly something different than that. It's something... um, I think it's obviously him not wanting to engage in a human um, ritual uh, that reflects emotion. Right. But then he also says, "Well, I regret that I can't give you any more information." I'm like, "Well, really, really, you're not going to say I'm sorry, but you can say I regret." There's <laughs> not a lot. Not a lot of
1: gradation there. Right. Well, for a Vulcan, apparently there is. Apparently there. Uh, they're still kind of nailing down, and, and this happens in a lot of the first half of the first season, there's kind of nailing down his character still, because we get a little sort of smile out of him when he and Kirk have their kind of uh, wry exchange. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of like that. I mean, we always talk about how Dr. Spock is so cold and emotionless, but he is half human, and I think it's okay for him to sort of, you know, sure he can fight with Dr. McCoy about how you know, heartless he is, but I like it when a little bit slips out
2: well i one of my novels one of my original series novels which is called the fire and the rose is largely a spock novel and i really wanted to explore spock as an alien because in the show we're constantly being told by spock that hey i'm not human i'm vulcan right. even though he's he's a hybrid but he, you know he he favors his vulcan heritage and is the vulcan way of life um, but he also c- constantly acts in contravention of that. We <laughs> right. do see the occasional smile. He professes his his very real friendship with Kirk and McCoy and and all of these things. Um, so I really wanted to get in and, and dig into Spock as an alien character, which I I did that in The Fire and the Rose, and I had great fun doing it because it's sort of an aspect of the character you don't see. And while we do see Spock's inner conflict, um, it's mostly just simply that, that Yes or no, human, not human, kind of thing, and I, I wanted to get in there a little bit more. You know, one of the things we also see for the first time in this episode, some of the the technical things, um, you know, the 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 contact with an alien vessel ahead or, or an object ahead. Mm-hmm. Sets off the red light on the, the helm and navigation console. Sure. They established that. When they talk about phasers for the first time, I think it's Bailey who mentions phasers for the first time, he calls them phaser weapons. Because, mm-hmm. of course, nobody knows what a phaser is. Right. right? right. Because this was the first episode produced. Right. And later he actually refers to them as phaser guns. So, <laughs> right. I mean, they they wanted to establish that. Yeoman you know, Rand talks about when she heated up coffee with a hand phaser, so now she's letting the audience know that they have portable versions of these the, of this ship weapon. You know, one of the things that they also established in this episode, I think, is that sort of lost in subsequent Star Trek episodes, especially later series like The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, uh, is that the sense of the unknown. Because this episode is really steeped in the unknown because it's the first time theoretically that the audience would be seeing any of this stuff because it was the first one aired you think it would be the first one I mean if this was the first one produced you think it might be the first one aired so we're we're getting this this combination of life aboard a starship being sort of not not mundane but it there is an everyday workaday sort of aspect to it Kirk's getting a physical his quarterly physical uh, they're on the bridge, you know, kind of board mapping stars, and, and, and so there's this workaday aspect to it. But then we encounter this alien, and it's a really, really well done sort of sense of of otherness and the unknown. And of course, the the guest character, the navigator Bailey, mm. it's a little rough on him. And and we <laughs> find out in the episode that Kirk has promoted him. Maybe faster than he should have, at least according to McCoy, and McCoy indicates that it's because Kirk sees a little bit of himself in Bailey,
0: yes, so
2: yeah. yeah, so Bailey's been pushed ahead maybe too quickly, and he he is cons- he doesn't want to die, and at some point <laughs> this may is a real possibility for him, so um, it's interesting yeah. to see that and and playing that whole not just uh, the unknown but the fear of the unknown, whereas the other characters, especially Kirk and Spock, much more sort of cerebral about it, and much right. more, as I said before, uh, anti-violence. They take a, a very decidedly diplomatic approach to things, um, or, or if not diplomatic, at least a sort of a wait-and-see approach, which, if not... It's a major theme in Star Trek, all of that. We'll talk first before we we decide to shoot. But it's really, really, really obvious in this episode and really well-established.
1: Yeah, Uh, I I really like Kirk's speech um, to the crew about sort of the unknown, where he says, to the effect of, you you know, things are only unknown until we know them. You know, We're out here to discover things, and so we don't have to be afraid of things. You know, we're going to find things out and, and move forward, which is really kind of what the whole show's about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely uh, I also really enjoy when we get to see the workings of the ship, like you mentioned. Um, you get the real feel of of a military crew going through their routine, um, and it 's emphasized, of course, in this episode in a big way. I also like when, after Kirk orders the phaser drill, you know, he's, he's chilling with McCoy, but he's, he's still listening in to the crew right. going through the exercise. And I'm yep. not a huge military or space military fiction fan because I tend to really enjoy the humanistic elements of Trek. But I think this episode shows that those military fiction elements are, they are baked in, and they always will be in the franchise going forward, but they're not overemphasized.
2: I completely agree with you, and I'm, I am of the same bent. I'm not a... a, a a military science fiction fan. I, uh, you know, I, I guess it has its place, obviously, and in mm-hmm. sort of a real, real world type of viewpoint, you, you, you know, you need that. But, you know, Kirk says more than one time, not in this episode, but he certainly implies it in this episode. But he says it in the subsequent episodes that he's an explorer, right? He's right. he's not a he doesn't consider himself. A military man. He's an explorer, and really, that's what you want out of Starfleet. I mean, that's well, what I want out of Starfleet, anyway. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, me too. We,
2: in the novels, not just my novels, but um, in in the twenty fourth century novels that have come out over the last few years, there was something called the Typhon Pact, which was a, mm-hmm. which is an alliance of the Romulans and. The Gorn and the Tholians and, and uh, six different nation states, uh, sort of a uh, kind of an anti-federation. And there's a lot of martial writing, uh, martial plots in those in a lot of the more recent novels. And we, as the writers and the editors, have made a really concerted effort to get back on track as Starfleet, our explorers. Okay. Um. Because, you know, you have the big action adventures, uh, you know, from a military standpoint, and that's fine. They have their place. But to me, and I think to a lot of other writers and editors and certainly readers and fans, mm-hmm. that's not what Star Trek is. Yeah. And so yeah. we've really, really tried to get back to that, that exploratory kind of mission.
1: Yeah, go go read um, Honor Harrington if you want some of that. Oh, (laughs) exactly right. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) sure. Nothing, nothing wrong with those books. Um, Before this episode aired, there was no definitive date at which the series was set um, in terms of the year. Uh, In this episode, Kirk does say that humans have been traveling in space for over two hundred years. And production designer on The Next Generation, Michael Okuda, would develop a timeline for the entire canon at Ruddenberry's request. Uh, and he was able to use Kirk's remark to sort of place this where it is in sort of, you know, our real world um, reckoning of time as uh, 2066. Uh, which also is a, you know, a nod, I'm sure, to when the series was released in 1966. Sure. And, uh, fun fact, uh, Jonathan Goldsmith, uh, who is better known as the most interesting man in the world, the Dos Aquis ah. uh, spokesman, it does sure. appear briefly in the episode as an unnamed crewman extra. Does he? Yes. Where? That is a good question. I spent a lot of time, because I knew this fact, and I spent a lot of time on Google Images before uh, we, I prepared uh, for the show trying to find this, and I was not able to find it, but apparently he does.
2: You know, it's really interesting, because there are... Um a number of of extras who appeared throughout the original series, um, right. but especially in in that first season, uh, people who recurred, who were there as background a lot. I mean, Eddie Paskey, who was William yeah. Shatner's stand-in, right. and who would ultimately play Lieutenant Leslie. I mean, he's in it so much that there are shot. T- there are times when he's in, like on the bridge. And then they cut to a, a corridor somewhere because the ship has been sh- shot at, and and the right. the crew's being thrown about, and he's one of the crew being thrown about. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, I mean, he's in multiple places of the ship at the same time. So, and I recognize these faces, and some of them uh, you 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 can research and get names to, and and other people have done that, and but um, some of them remain completely unknown, at least as far as I've been able to to find out. because I. Cause I I wrote um, a tr- uh, an original series trilogy called Crucible uh, in 2006, where uh, they came out in 2006, 2007. That celebrated the 40th, 40th anniversary of the show, and I wanted to steep my books in the original series. And so I, I knew a lot already, but I went. I paid a lot of attention to those. They're not even secondary characters, tertiary, quaternary characters. <laughs> right. Um, I mean they're. They're really not even characters. They're more like furniture because they're just there in the background. Um, and so, I, I noticed while I watched this episode, the Corbo might maneuver this week in anticipation of being on your show. I, I was paying very strict attention to those background actors, mm-hmm. and I, I, I can only, I think there were some that I recognized. None of them I would have recognized. Maybe I couldn't recognize him as the most interesting man in the world. What is his right. name? Gold Goldsmith.
1: John John the Goldsmith. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm going to have to look again because there is one scene toward the beginning where Kirk is uh, getting he gets out of sick bay and he's walking to a turbo lift where there's a lot of movement in the corridor. Yes, you see a lot of guys. I have to look at that again because. I'm not sure where else he would be. Was this his only his only appearance on the original series? As
1: far as I know, yeah.
2: Then it it can't be any of the guys that I've seen and recognized.
1: Right, you probably wouldn't are... yeah, recognize him.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to have to it's that I bet it's that where Kirk is in the corridor headed and where did you find this out? I mean, are we sure that this is true?
1: Uh, it's on Memory Alpha, so I'm taking it as truth.
2: <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean it's interesting because sometimes people. I mean, it may well be true, and I, I think it's fascinating if it is. And how how much more interesting does that
1: make this man? But <laughs> that's right. And if anything, it's a missed opportunity because uh, in a lot of those commercials, they would have. Shots of him, a younger him, you know, hunting salmon with bears and all these different scenes. So if they just slipped in a little, a little Star Trek in there,
2: (laughs) yeah, that would have been fantastic. (laughs) Uh, People would have just thought they green screened it or something, but right, yeah, But if it were actually true, I, I'm going to have to look at that because that's a fascinating bit of trivia. But it's also the kind of thing where somebody might see somebody who resembles him and jumps to the conclusion and just make, you know, makes that statement on memory alpha i'm not saying that's what happened but i i'm i'm going to be skeptical until i can confirm this but i think it's fascinating
1: Well, the show changed greatly, not just from pilot to series, um, but this this script itself went through many changes from its initial concept as Danger Zone by Zole to the final draft. And changes were made even from the final draft to when it was shot. Uh, Originally, Bailey was to be the communications officer before the addition of Lieutenant Uhura. Um, There were also a lot of character bits that were added in the later stages, like the references to chess and poker, um, Kirk's having to eat salad, uh, the reference to Spock's father. So it was clear that they were still working things out. And I think that's really evidenced by the fact that the crew in this episode meets a representative of a society called the First Federation, when the show itself doesn't really establish that Starfleet is the Navy of the Federation, the United Federation of Planets, until late in the first season. It's to uh, be a little confusing.
2: Right. They don't mention the Federation uh, in that episode, and, no. and as you say, not till the end of the first season. But also, when Kirk refers to the Enterprise, when he introduces himself uh, via subspace radio, to to Bailock. he says, "This is I'm of the United Earth Ship." Yeah,
1: which right? I don't think is ever used again on the show.
2: Before they established Starfleet and the Federation, they called it the United Earth Space Probe Agency, and Kirk also <laughs> refers to it sometime by that acronym, the United Earth Space Probe Agency U E S P A. He calls okay. it USPA. Right, right. which if you're not really paying attention, or even if you are, it's hard to sort of catch and really understand what, what that. Wait, what? what? What's what that <laughs> word? What is he talking about? Right. So yeah, they haven't established those things, but you know the character bits; those things are going to come up in a first episode, in the first few episodes, because they really are trying to establish how these characters relate to one another.
1: Yeah, and this, this episode was to, originally to air much earlier in the first season, but there were you know there were clearly a lot of physical, uh, visual effect shots uh, depicting the Viserys and and um, the glowing cube and all that sort of thing so it was pushed you know, later in the schedule
2: is that uh, why it was pushed I was, I've was i always wondered about that I didn't know that
1: yeah that's that's what I've heard I mean just at the time I think that was a lot of you know effect shots for, for a show uh, Star Trek or a sci-fi show at the time
2: right of course and I also think that Star Trek's effects even though they can look dated now they really were steady the art at the time and certainly sure. for television oh yeah um, but on top of that I understood, and now this may not have to do directly with the Corvilline Maneuver, but I understand that the uh, network really wanted the man trapped because of the so-called salt vampire, which, you know, was their idea of science fiction. You know, right, like, yeah, right. show, us, show us a creepy monster.
0: Rubber monsters, um, yeah, right. <laughs> and
2: and, and Spock bleeding green. You know, that, that right. that's what they wanted, which I think, I mean, the Man Trap is a, a fine episode. It's got some some interesting themes to it, but sure. I wouldn't call it one of the stronger episodes. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's nice, kind of an odd choice for that first episode. And at the same time, the Corbomite Maneuver, you know, had it been ready and had it been able to air, I think, really would have established that being out there, that 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 being on the on the absolute edge of the frontier, um, right. that that wagon train to the stars sort of approach. And actually. You know, the very first scene when they're on the bridge mapping stars, and and Bailey's sort of complaining about the the humdrum nature of it. To Spock, Bailey says, "Some somebody has to have mapped these stars before." And Spock says, "No, we're the we're, we, we're we are the furthest furthest out of any ship ever." And I mean, that that, that you're putting you right on the frontier. They're, they're letting you know, hey, we're the first ones out here.
1: Yeah. Um, there's also uh, speaking of Spock, I feel like he's a little uh more ready than he is in later episodes in this. Um he's got sort of that sort of greenish cast, but there's a little more color in his cheeks. Uh, mm-hmm. I think in this first episode than he usually looks like uh, later on. You
2: know, I um, think yeah, I think you're right. Now that you, yeah. I didn't think of, I didn't notice that, but having just watched the episode now that you mentioned, it, I I think you're right.
1: Yeah. It had to be difficult as a faithful viewer in this era of television to tune into your new favorite show and see things being different or, or weirdly nonsequential week to week. I mean we're we're thirty years away from the Sopranos and the rise of serialized stories in T V. Um, and the reset in this decade was everything. You know, you wanted to tune in every week and see that, yep, those those Robinsons are they're still lost in space. Right. Uh, right. But I right. I always enjoy it when Trek gets a chance in this era to to draw on its own sort of quickly growing history. Um, of course they do episodes, it often. Yeah, and yeah. the episodes that aired right after this were, of course, Menagerie Parts 1 and 2, which I'm sure the production saw as a way to recoup the cost on the original pilot, <laughs> The Cage. Sure. But we already get a sense that this is a world with a history that's being built.
2: Right, yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, it's really interesting, too, that um, you know I wonder especially because you mentioned the special effects and the cost and the and the length of time it took to do them for the Corbin Mike Maneuver, I also wonder about other things that I don't know, things about the production itself, like how did it go over budget, did it go over time? One of the reasons I wonder if it went over time is because there are some really interesting camera shots in the Corbin Mike Maneuver that you don't see repeated in the show, or yeah. at least not very often. I mean, one of the early shots... Uh, in the very first scene, is an overhead shot of the bridge yeah, that yeah. tracks from Spock's console, moves up, encompasses Sulu and Bailey at the helm and navigation consoles, and then zooms in to Bailey pressing a button. And it's it's a beautiful shot, but you don't yeah. see that very often in the show.
1: No, they're certainly um, establishing you know the bridge and sort of the world and setting that we're going to see these characters um, go through for years and years. There's a, there are a lot of interesting camera moves. Um, we also get the, um, this is before Steadicam, so it's the not-so-steady POV shot uh, as we see Kirk exit the turbolift and he comes Right, the that's a great
2: shot, too, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, and we see in that shot that they were using double doors on the turbolift. Yes, uh, like I noticed that, elevator. too. Yeah.
2: Fantastic.
1: But they scrapped that, I think, after the first episode because they were like, what a hassle, we don't need to do that <laughs> just have one set Man. of doors.
2: Well, it's also interesting, too, uh, what you mentioned about seeing things out of sequence because... Okay, here here there there are two doors, but then never ne- not before that and not after that. And of course, the third episode that was ever aired was the second pilot, which looked right. vastly different.
1: Yeah, totally different.
2: The, the ships, the uniforms, Spock,
1: Doctor, yeah. everything.
2: Yeah, the yeah. doctor was different. So, yeah, just uh but yeah, obviously 50 years ago if you wanted to watch an episode of a television show, you better watch it when it's on. Right. <laughs> right, because, I mean, if you're lucky, you might get to see it one more time in the next year. Right. And Star Trek was, a, was a, I think, a pioneer in the notion of syndication, right?
0: I mean, right. Star Trek yeah, was yeah. one of
2: the very first uh, series to be so wildly successful in syndication. And I think it was one of the first shows that was really syndicated.
1: Yeah, it really. Yeah, it opened the way for a lot of other shows. the The production went through a lot of changes. The script went through a lot of changes. And I'm curious, um, as somebody who's written the story for a Star Trek episode and then had the teleplay drawn up by other writers, can you talk about the process and the input that you have into the final form the draft takes?
2: Well, it's an interesting question, uh, and my experience with it is limited. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I I did co-write uh, a story for the first season Voyager episode, Prime Factors. It right. was Depending on how you count, the first episode is either a one two hour episode or two one hour episodes. It was the right, tenth, right. either the ninth or the tenth episode, right, the tenth right. hour of Voyager. Sure. Um, and you know we went in with a very specific uh, idea, uh, which was to establish that the prime directive, which I think is a spectacular part of of Star Trek, because I mean it really demonstrates how it's it's very swifty in in its and its, uh, it's the way it plays. You know, it's just Jonathan Swift, you know, was not talking about the Lilliputians. He was talking about the British government. And, right. yeah, we're talking about Starfleet's prime directive, but, yeah, we're really talking about Vietnam. So, <laughs> right. uh, and the episode Prime Factors that we, were, that we pitched was that maybe, maybe the prime directive is a double-edged sword. Maybe another race that you need something from has their own prime directive, and because of that's not going to help you. Uh-huh. And that was where the, the the crux of that was the crux of the episode is that okay, we've run across a race that has very powerful transporter technology that could get us, if not all the way home, a huge portion of the way back to the Alpha Quadrant. Right. But hey, you know what? They have their own prime directive, so they're not gonna give it to you. <laughs> right. And so okay, the Captain Janeway in this case, that's that's the way it goes. She accepts it. Some of her crew do not, and so there's a little bit of, not a full-blown mutiny, but there are some mutinous actions taken. Some, certainly some, some, some orders are, are, uh, are violated, so yeah. uh, they're not obeyed. We pitched that story, and we were, we were asked to clarify and change some things in the story, and we did that and went back with it, and we sold it. And then the episode was, in our case, just given to a, a pair of writers that they were that the producers were actually essentially auditioning to become staff writers. Okay. So they wanted to see what these guys could do. Right, uh, weren't quite as interested in what I could do or what my co-writer could do, but um, that, which was fine. I mean, that's just that's the business. And so yeah. after that, we did not have a great deal of input into what the show was going to look like. Um, I mean, they they changed the name of the aliens that we had come up with and and other incidental details like that. Mm -hmm. Although the story that came out was largely our story. And I think that's reflected, I don't think, it is reflected in the fact that the teleplay is by, um, by this writing team, and the story, credit, is just Eric and me.
1: So yeah,
2: sure, sure. Um, had it be, had they changed considerably from our initial idea, it would have been the story would have been by the four of us.
1: I'm curious as well when you write a lost era novel or, or something like d s nine that's in continuity, uh, how does that develop? Are you pitching stories to your publisher and they they greenlight you then to write about John Harriman or their characters, or are they soliciting stories from you about specific settings?
2: It depends uh, mostly uh, well, you know the first time actually that I ever pitch anything to Simon & Schuster, who for the last 20-plus years has owned, it might even be 30 years by now, uh, has mm-hmm. owned um, the, the has had the licensing rights to publish Star Trek novels. Um, I, Armin Shimmerman, who played Quark on Deep Space Nine, unlike a lot of other actors, wasn't so interested in directing. He wanted to write. And in fact, yeah. he had written, uh, co-written uh, a, a, a novel called The Merchant Prince, um, which was a sort of half Shakespeare, half science fiction sort of novel, which it was terrific. Um, and he wanted to write so so my co-writer on Prime Factors, Eric Stillwell, uh, and, and he knew Armin, and the three of us got together, and we came up with a, a number of stories that we pitched to Deep Space Nine and did not sell. Hmm. Uh, and on our way out of the Hart Building, where the production offices were, Armin said, you know, we should write a novel. And Eric was like, yeah, he, he wasn't interested in that. <laughs> And I I was like, yeah, sure. Although I've always wanted to be a novelist, I I was like, yeah, right. But I called, I found out the name of the editor at Simon & Schuster who was doing the Star Trek novels at that time. And I called up and and I tried to sell it by saying, hey, how'd you like to have one of the actors' name on a book? (laughs) Right. And uh, this editor, John Ordover, said, yeah, that'd be great, but you're still going to have to go through the same process as anybody else, which was (laughs) give me a narrative outline, uh, that describes the beginning, middle, and end of the story, and all of the character arcs and thematic elements. And once you've done that, and we and you and I, and I say it's okay, then you'll write two, three, four chapters, whatever, 50 pages or so of the novel, and I'll look at that. And if I, you know, think that you're capable, then we'll talk about signing you. So Armin, and Eric was interested. So Armin and I sat down for a couple of weeks and expanded the story, one of our stories, tremendously because. Writing, you know, a fifty-one minute or forty-two minute episode of a television series is vastly different than writing a hundred thousand plus word book. Yeah, if you right. A lot, a lot more plot, a lot more complexity, or at least the opportunity for a lot more complexity. So I'm I over a few weeks. Greatly expanded the story, wrote the outline. I. Uh, this was the late 90s, so I actually faxed it to Mr. Ordover. <laughs> and uh, 15 minutes later, he called me and said, okay, we'll buy the book. I'm like, well, wait, wait a minute. What about the chapters that you want? He said, yeah, from, from your outline, I know you guys can write.
0: Nice.
2: So, yeah, it was great. But, and so we, we wrote the 34th Rule. Actually, mostly I wrote the 34th Rule because, as I said, Armin had written a novel before. Mm-hmm. But and so our plan was I, I I wrote the first chapter and then I gave it to him and he was going to change it add to it you know whatever wow. um, you know help make it his own but he actually I wish I had this message uh, he left a message on my answering machine when he read the first chapter and said you know this is a thing of beauty I don't need to change a word um, <laughs> it was it was fantastic and so we then we went to the second chapter and he said the same thing and then by the third chapter he said like, just write the novel. <laughs> and uh, I, the only reason I'm saying this in public is because I've heard Armin say it in public so many times uh. um, and I used to counsel him don't say that your name's on the book and I mean it is his story too I mean, we did sit down and write the story together sure. um, but uh, anyway so I wrote that book and then subsequent to that pretty much Simon Schuster has come to me and asked me if I wanted to write a Star Trek novel and sometimes it's just Hey, what do you what do you want to pitch to us? What do you feel like? Telling us. Sometimes it's, hey, we would like a novel with Captain Sisko and Mr Spock. Um, and we want Sisko Sisko's back from his sojourn in the celestial temple that he took at the end of the series. Now he's in the book he's in the books he's back. So we want him now we want to get him back in Starfleet. So do that. So right. sometimes I get those sort of edicts that they, they you know, those sort of uh, plot points that they'd like to see. But I have a, and I think all of the writers have a really, really great deal of freedom in coming up with stories and being able to do whatever helps us tell the best stories we can. And that includes things like killing canon characters, uh, <laughs> uh, which you don't see a lot of in a lot, a lot of um Different franchises, but we, we had some great editors. Um, John Ordover only edited my first book. First uh, half a dozen books after that, it was a man named Marco Palmieri who was a fantastic editor. And then um, for I think eleven books, a woman named Margaret Clark, uh, who okay. I just finished uh, working with on uh, on a novel that'll be out in December called Original Sin. Um, but. Uh, uh, both of them, especially um, Marco and Margaret, just they know their Star Trek, they love it. they have a good sense of what makes a good Star Trek story, but they're also really, really good editors um, mm. uh, regardless of it being Star Trek and sure. yeah I think I don't know if some writers have adversarial relationships with their editors, but <laughs> I absolutely do not because I especially if Marco and Margaret just completely trusted them, they just they make my work better, uh, which you can't argue with that. <laughs>
1: As a writer, I'm interested in your opinion about um, the existence of, or the uh, the suggestion of the existence of Corbomite. Uh, Corbomite appears in this story, and of course it appears in a later episode as well, and it's a device, uh, it's a literal device in the script, but it's also a sort of story device uh, that is used to sort of get them out of the situation. It's Kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card, like, do you think that it's a good device in, in this the telling of this story?
2: You know, it's the kind of thing, that kind of a bluff has been used a great deal, I'm sure, before and certainly since. But it works for me not as much as a, in the role of a story device as in the role of a character device. Because I uh-huh. think it really is, I think it's really revelatory, um, that's too grandiose a term, but I think it does <laughs> reveal uh, aspects of Spock's character and Kirk's character, and how they right. come at things from, a different, uh, from different perspectives. I mean, Spock is the ultimately analytical individual, and Kirk, uh, while well, well you would say McCoy is the, the overly emotional one, Kirk is in between. I mean, he's certainly a rational individual who considers logic, but he also trusts his gut. And I think we get those sorts of character moments from the whole poker, chess, corbomite bluff, uh, yeah. Sequence. I, I think that's really uh, a, lo- a lot of the reason that that's in there. It also demonstrates, too, Kirk's sort of bravado is not the right word, but I mean he is brash and he has a sense of uh, of people's motivations, even if those people are, are aliens, because he's he's a starship commander. He needs to be able to make deductions and can draw conclusions about about people with whom he deals even if he doesn't know them and so he you know he says to Baylock, if, if that has little meaning to us if has none to you kill us now don't wait right. you know what well, you're gonna die too but let, hey let's do this thing right. but he certainly he certainly fully expects that's not gonna happen
1: right but yeah I it, it's also i just think that it's it's Baked into the episode in a superior way, um, with like you mentioned, you know the the metaphor of chess and poker, and it is they're not just using it to. We got to get away from the Romulans somehow. Um, we've got a Corbomite device, you know, near the end of the right. episode. Like it's right. really right. central to what's going on.
2: Well, and it's funny because in later Star Trek series and in later Star Trek episodes, uh, you get the 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 Technobabble, right? That solves, mm-hmm. it, which is essentially a Deus ex machina, but. In this episode, the technology doesn't even really exist. I mean, in, in, in future series, they'll they'll give you some grand explanation of some science fiction concept that actually gets them out of some, you know, danger. But oh, yeah. here, it gets them out of danger, but doesn't really exist.
1: It's it, not it was, even real, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I and mean, what's the, the key here is is Kirk's is the bluff, is Kirk's understanding of the motivations uh, of the person he's facing. Um, and also, he by doing all of this takes control of the situation. Yes. Right, to this point, Enterprise has been toyed with. The crew has been toyed with, and right. now Kirk's had enough. And this is this is one way he takes control again. Um, yeah, I think I think it works as uh, like I say, more of a character device, but it it is baked into the episode in a superior way. Um, it really flows. Very
1: well. Yeah. There's a real tension to the episode, too. Um, and I, I like um, the idea of when we get in the show, like the, the two commanders trying to outwit each other, mm-hmm. um, we kind of return possibly to those sort of uh, military aspects. But you get the idea of, well, Balance of Terror, which is a wonderful episode, is probably the best example of that. It's almost Das Boot in space. You know, sure. These two commanders trying to outwit each other. Yeah. And I also I always love a good old countdown to destruction, you know, oh, ticking clock, yeah. which is central in this episode.
2: It's uh, in the, in the Harriman novel that I wrote, the first Harriman novel, Serpents Among the Ruins. Um, there's, uh, which is the, something that was mentioned in the, uh, in Star Trek, the next generation, the so-called Tomet incident, yes. uh, which, which was like one of the last things that drove the Federation and the Romulans apart. And so they hadn't seen each other between Kirk's time and, and Picard's time, um, I, the the Serpent Among the Ruins is the telling of the, what that is, what the Tomat incident was, mm. and there's a real ticking clock aspect to it, so much so that my prologue is called Countdown, and then the next ten <laughs> chapters are ten, minus ten, minus nine, minus eight, minus That's seven. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you on the ticking clock. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, uh, let's talk about the little bald kid in the low-ceilinged room. Um, This episode, of course, uh, features Clint Howard as the real face of the alien Baylock. Howard was six or seven at the time this was filmed, Uh, but he had 13 credits on his resume before Star Trek. He had an entire season of The Baileys of Balboa under his belt. Wow. And he had done done, uh, five Andy Griffiths, I think, before that. Uh, So he was quite accomplished uh, for his age as a young actor.
2: Well, I think he did a fine job. Uh, yeah, in, he was great. His, yeah, I mean, he was... Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell because he was looped by... Is that Vic Perrin or... Um, uh,
1: surprisingly, no, it's not. Um, it's uh, Walker Edmiston, uh, who was a actor and a voiceover artist. Um, oh. He had his own children's show, uh, The Walker Edmiston Show, and he worked on several Sid and Marf- Marty Croft projects as well.
2: I didn't know that. I, I think I always sort of assumed it was Vic Perrin because it kind of sounds like him. It would be a lot of um, choice, yeah. And, and Vic Perrin actually... I mean, I'm sure Star Trek fans maybe have seen his name here and there in the credits, but he did a lot mm-hmm. of voices. But he also was an actor who played one of the Halkins in Mirror, Mirror. And he, he, he acted. I've seen him in Mission Impossible episodes. And actually, I don't know what happens, but sometimes, I guess, somebody's voice in a Mission Impossible episode didn't sit well with the producers. And Vic Perrin <laughs> looped entire episodes of dialogue for an actor. <laughs> wow. Fascinating stuff, <laughs> but at any rate, they, the 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 sync between Clint Howard's mouth and the voice, I think, is 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 beautiful, and yeah. it really helps. I mean, they went in the menagerie, not the menagerie, in the, well, the menagerie too, but in the cage, they went with um, elderly women to play the uh, the Telosians. yeah. and now, of mm. course, they're going with a six-year-old boy,
1: right. <laughs> to, to play
2: Balok. Um, yeah. but it works. It it really demonstrates. The, it's one way to demonstrate the alien. This is something without having to do it via CGI, which, of course, didn't exist at the time, really. So, right. uh, yeah, I, I, to me, it was great. And it was, you know, when you first see Baylock's alter ego, the, 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 the puppet that appears that Spock manages to get a, a shot of um, on, on the main view screen, it, it's it's alien and strange-looking, sort of demonic-looking. And when it when it moves its head back and forth it looks like a doll it looks like a puppet and yeah. I, I i just have to wonder if people watching it for the first time way back in 1966 were thinking well that's terrible that looks like a puppet but of course it's supposed to be a puppet <laughs> okay as it turns <laughs> yeah, right. out it actually is a puppet in the story it's a puppet so yeah but right i like the fact that you know they're, they're told to to bend down it reads pretty cramped over <laughs> nice. on bailout ship and then it turns out that he's you know he looks like a six-year-old boy, except a bald one. I thought right, they yeah. did a great job with uh, with the bald cap too, because they put the the uh, the adornment around his head that you know hid any, any any lines that might have showed it might would have ruined the uh, the illusion. Yeah, um, it looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it looks pretty good. And again, this is 1966. This is 50 years ago. This is. I mean, if you look at a show like *Lost in Space* at the time, and you compare the effects, and not just visual effects, but practical effects, like a bald cap or whatever, right. just *Star Trek* is so superior. I mean, I know it looks dated now, but it really, for its time, it was extremely. Extremely good, um and Star Trek was also one of the cheaper shows on television at the time in terms of yeah. budget. I mean, right. Mission Impossible was on at the same time and had twice the episodic budget. <laughs> yeah, which is which is crazy to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Crazy. I mean, you know, and you know, you got to hand it to jo- Joseph Sargent who directed because a lot of times, I mean, I guess you said Clint Howard had thirteen credits, so he was already an oh, established yeah, actor, so he knew what he was <laughs> yeah. doing. Yeah. Usually, children's performances largely derive from a solid director.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, a—he's a, a weird little guy. Uh, he's exa- hes an example of the type of alien the ship, especially in the original series, seems to run into a lot. Um, a, a superior, superior, technologically advanced race. Um, and it's always a chance for Kirk and crew. When they inevitably get the upper hand over uh, said aliens to show the ingenuity of humanity and also to reiterate those high-minded ideals. As you would mentioned before in the episode, they resist getting into a conflict whenever possible, and they even try to help Balak when they think he's in trouble at the end.
2: Yeah, I love that aspect of the show. Is here somebody who was trying, maybe, was trying to kill us, said that he was going to try and kill us. You know, right. I, I don't think he really why He was testing them and all that, but they don't know that at the time. And right. yet... They're still going to try and help him. It's, it's, if you look at uh, the search for Spock, where Kirk is battling Krug on, on, on the planet that's being destroyed, and you know he, he sends Krug to the edge of a cliff, and Kirk, Kirk goes to try and help him up, and right. Krug tries to pull him over so that they both die. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then Kirk's <laughs> like, I've had enough of you, and he kicks him off. I hated that. I hated that. I loved that Kirk tried to help him, but I hate right. that it ended up where Kirk killed him. And you could argue that the Kirk really didn't have a choice and all of that. But the writers did. <laughs> and yeah. I thought to me the, the Klingons were a little for from my taste, they were a little too um, you know, sort of cartoon evil, you know, twirling mustaches well, like, he will-
1: Krug especially yeah <laughs> yeah
2: so I mean that's just my taste I mean, I'm sure plenty of people loved it but it just wasn't quite my thing um yeah. but I like the fact that in the Corbin might maneuver here's somebody who certainly was adversarial who, who who stopped our ship from moving ahead and then who, who threatened it uh, and uh, you know ex- explicitly threatened said you got 10 minutes then I'm going to kill you and yet yeah. they go help him when he's in trouble and, and I mean that's practical application of ideals not just talking about them right and that's i I just love that i mean to me that's the heart of star trek heart people sometimes wonder why star trek has been popular for 50 years and to me it's no mystery it's twofold one here's an optimistic view of the future told by characters that we can relate to and who we love i mean it's, it's that simple and that that optimistic vision of the future is an inclusive vision. It's not about right. tolerance. The word tolerance is is fine, but to me it also sort of implies impl- that, yeah, you're different from me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up with you. I'm going to tolerate you. And I know that's not the sense of tolerance when people talk about tolerance, but I sort of prefer the word inclusiveness or inclusion because everybody gets a seat at the table, even though... Kura was a background character, even though Sula was a, a secondary character. Hey, there's a black woman on the bridge in a position of authority. There's an Asian man on the bridge in a position of authority. These are really important things, especially for 50, well, for 50 years ago, but you know what? It's still important now. Um, my, my editor, Marco Palmieri, likes to say, pessimism is a misuse of imagination. I like that. I do too. Uh,
1: on that note, I, I think it's hard. Maybe I'm out on a limb, but it's. I think it's hard to not view this uh, without looking at it in the light of like '60s Cold War politics. Uh, there's there's a lot of brinksmanship, you know, in this episode. There's even there's a literal doomsday device. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was the intention of the writer to to parallel what was going on in the real world at the time?
2: I don't know about parallel, but reflect certainly. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, that's my guess. I could be completely wrong. Um sure. but it it seems like that, doesn't it? i mean star trek is not it was not shy about its politics and right. and uh it was it was not something that was a uh, uh, a seldom used aspect of the show. I mean, how many times did they talk about the prime directive, and it was yeah. clear what they were talking about, so yeah, my guess is that this had something to do with what was going on in the 60s. I mean, in 1966, November 1966,
0: you said, so we're right. talking
2: just a few years post-Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, real-world brinksmanship. So, yeah, that, right. I, I do think that Jerry Saul probably had these things in his mind when he, when he wrote this episode. I think probably Gene Roddenberry and the producers were actively looking for those sorts of stories.
1: It's possible. Balak also turns out to be something of a paper tiger. I mean, he's not even what we think initially, he, what he looks like. He's small and unimposing. So it, it's just a thought I had that in some way, this is supposedly possibly representing Russia or somebody else that's sort of blustery. Um, I mean, he offers him Tranya instead of banging his shoe on a podium. You know, <laughs> still. Yeah,
2: well, you know, it's really interesting. That's a, an interesting perspective. I actually went to Russia for a few weeks.
1: Oh,
0: wow.
2: Um, back in the nineties of all, for of all reasons to play baseball. And uh, <laughs> wow. I I I'm a big baseball fan and I, I still to this day play baseball. I love baseball. Uh and uh a, a couple of a, a bunch of my friends well, two we had basically two teams of people and so we went over to Russia we set this up in advance. We went over to Russia for we were there for about three weeks and we only played eight the the two teams play each played four games. Um, so we were, there was a lot of non-baseball stuff there, but, um, mm. we played their professional teams and, um, and they were a bunch of 18 year old decathletes. That's where they got their baseball players because they didn't grow up right. playing the game. And it yeah, was right. clear when we played them that they didn't, hadn't played the game, but they were also, you know, six foot, six inch specimens. <laughs> <laughs> right. Actually for their pitchers, they, 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 um, recruited Olympic javelin throwers. Uh, it was, it was amazing. It was a spectacular experience, but I bring this up because... I didn't speak Russian. A lot of them spoke English, um, and we had a lot of time with with these these just average Russian citizens. I mean, not just the baseball players, but the people around that were that were hosting us, and and people at the hotel and all these places. And Russian citizens are like American citizens. I mean, these people are people. You know, you've got the governments doing these kinds of things, but the people sort of. You kind of think that, by and large, human beings, regardless of their national origin, really kind of want the same things. I think mostly happiness.
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> he he turns into, he, well, at least he appears as kind of an Epicurean guy. You know, he invites them in. He's like, hey, hang out with me. Drink the, drink the Tranya. Isn't it good? His brinksmanship wasn't
2: really brinksmanship unless he expected uh Kirk and company to fight back. Um, it, it, right. He certainly, by by scanning the ship, he determined early on that they were not a physical a threat to him and right, to his right, ship. Right. Um, I, but then Kirk says, hey, well, maybe we are." By introducing the Corbomite device, um, <laughs> right. but you have to think when you think through the whole episode, it's like Balak, He wasn't. He wasn't going to the brink because he wanted to fight and he wanted to beat back adversaries. He wanted to make sure that the people that he allowed in were potential friends. Yeah. Um, and so, he, he, you know, really that's what he, he just wanted to make sure about. And Kirk really demonstrates that to him, uh, what, that aspect of what he was looking for, which is that, you know, we can be friends. You know, yeah. that, the second season episode by any other name, where Enterprise is hijacked by the Andromedans and taken, yeah. you know, toward th- that galaxy. You know, at the end of that episode, it doesn't end by Kirk and company, uh, 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 you know, defeating them physically. He, he says, "Look, we don't don't fight us. We'll welcome you." Is really right. you do that? You you do that for enemies? Rojan says, "No, but we yeah. welcome friends." I mean, that's to me, that's all Star Trek. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. It's still an interesting technique, though. Uh, you know, clearly they want to have a a positive exchange. But the way that they sort of go about that is they kind of bring the worst and, and see how you react to it. They get into a nacelle measuring contest, you know, with other species. <laughs> um, I don't really know the history of the First Federation. I know there's a Trek novel, um, The Face of the Unknown, by Christopher Bennet, uh, Bennett, that delves more into it. But, you know, Bailock, he's he's kind of a capricious character. Um, I I think that entire strategy of testing new species makes me think that they're kind of concerned about how they look or their status. So I guess my sort of crackpot theory for this episode would be that maybe they heard about the Federation and they thought, hmm, let's be the first Federation. Yeah, uh, we've been around a while. You probably (laughs) haven't heard of us.
2: That's uh, funny, I hadn't thought of it that way. It's <laughs> funny though
1: this is a uh, eminently uh, quotable episode um and they're really going for a lot of great character touches um and of course, they managed to get the entire main cast on the bridge so they can all bounce off of each other. Sure. Do you have a favorite quote or exchange from this episode?
2: well, you know of course McCoy talking you know if i i if I reacted to every light that went off around here and ended up talking <laughs> to myself, which he of course is right. saying to himself hey, no it's a room, little right. obvious, <laughs> but it's fun and it's very McCoy. Yeah. um
1: I like his exchanges with Kirk. They have this little bit that doesn't really continue into the series, but he keeps you know, saying all these aphorisms, and he's like, you, you always say this. He's like, no, oh, I, I didn't say
2: yeah, that. Oh, th- I say yeah, that. those are great. <laughs> you know, you said a little, a little suffering is good for the song. Oh, I never say that. A man is ultimately superior to any. Oh, no, I never said that either. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I heard you say that. Um, yeah, those those were all great. All those character moments are really great. Um, you know yeah. what I uh, what I like, which is not a verbal exchange. I really like the way William Shatner's Captain Kirk watches Bailey on the bridge. Yeah, he's very measured in his observation of this officer that he's already been told by McCoy he may have promoted too quickly, and it's because you see yourself in him. So so watching him watch Bailey and. He's not given Bailey enough rope to hang himself. He's given up Bailey enough rope to rescue himself. But then, of course, he why he goes too far, and he's got to relieve him. But then, you know, Bailey comes back to the bridge, and Kirk's, hey, yep, take your take your position. Well, although that's a really interesting sequence too. It doesn't bear up under much scrutiny because Baylock gives him ten minutes, and in yeah. that time, Bailey goes off the deep end, and and that his his what he says there when he gets when he's fearful and angry uh is a great sequence what are you robots right. uh, don't you know when you're <laughs> dying oh he's doing a count you know he's doing a countdown yeah. over yeah. it's all great but it takes time and then Bailey's relieved by Kirk McCoy escorts him off the bridge McCoy comes back and then Bailey comes back I'm like that's a really busy 10 minutes
1: yeah it's kind of compressed <laughs> yeah
2: so um, I'm saying I guess he didn't make it all the way to his quarters, but no, he
1: turned around and.
2: <laughs> I, th- I think um, I can't even remember the the actor's name right now who plays Bailey. Also did a very nice job, and I actually thought yes. they should have brought him back at some point.
1: That would have been interesting to see him sort of come back like uh, Wesley, you know, coming back from The Traveler, uh, seeing what he learned from the uh, First Federation. I wanted to mention really quick that uh, Ted Cassidy did do the voice of the Bellocs puppet.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I was thinking about that when I watched the episode. I don't think I ever had that confirmed, but as I was watching the episode the other day... Um, i'm like that's
1: ted cassidy <laughs> right and it, him and the like even when he like he plays rook he kind of looks like the puppet a little bit it's like same uh oh right same kind of uh tunic and same complexion and yeah they, that,
2: and they've got him shadowed his cheeks you know hollowed right you know right, with that yeah. that that shading yeah that's that's uh
1: yeah that's funny that's it, a guy whose uh, entire career is built on cheek shadowing i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah between that and lurch and everything else right uh well as we wrap up here did you have any uh, last thoughts about the episode
2: well, I just think it's an episode that, as I said at the beginning, is underappreciated by by fans. I think if people watch the episode again, try and keep it in context, which is to say that it was the first show ever shot. So not only is everything that happens, uh, all of this unknown uh, part of what the crew deals with, it's a part of what the audience would have been dealing with as well had this been the first right. episode aired that yeah. we don't know anything about this ship, this crew, these characters, their situation, and we're learning it for the first time. It's really interesting to watch it through that prism, I think. It, it makes it um, more, um, I don't know, it's sort of more important, a more important episode, too, that I think people realize, because it does, as you've mentioned, establish a lot of things, both sort of technical things, uh, character things, character relationships, uh, I, I just think it's, uh, it's a terrific episode uh, and people don't often see it because a lot of that stuff, a lot of th- the stuff that happens in the episode sort of happened in different forms in other episodes later. So it's right. like, oh, we already know this story. And, but you know what? It's really good. I try and imagine start this episode as the only episode of Star Trek. Right, mm-hmm. I mean, try just think about this uh let's say you know nothing came before, nothing came after, and really, in large part, nothing did come before. But think about if this was the only if this was just a one hour special on television, um right. it still plays it's still yeah, that's it, true. it's internally consistent, it has everything it needs, it's got a beginning and middle, and then it's got great character interaction uh it it, it professes high ideals. Uh, it, it's and, and then it follows through on those ideals. It really, in a lot of ways, for me, is quintessential Star Trek.
1: Me too. Let's talk my space dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why?
2: I got to say, it's probably Captain Kirk, because that was my first captain, right? So, Sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, I love Picard. I love Janeway uh, and Cisco. Uh, I love, you know what I love them all. I I, I love Harriman. Um,
0: <laughs> sure.
2: I think there's, but, I, so the short answer is Kirk. But you know, uh, which, <laughs> which one of your children do you like best? Because I've gotten right, these, right. Long
1: answer is it's a tough question. Right?
2: Right, well, I mean I have gotten to write all of these characters too, and sure. Um,
1: they all. Well, that's a good one. Which which one is your favorite to write?
2: Probably Cisco. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, because Cisco is. Maybe because I, I've known Kirk for so long, and his story is very sort of, and his personality is very sort of, um, if, if compared to the other ones, it's kind of simplistic. And actually, Cisco, I think, in relation to the other captains, is far more complex. And, oh, yeah. and part of that is just the circumstances. But Michael Piller and uh, Rick Berman gave a really textured landscape. Uh, For Deep Space Nine, Uh, a really detailed background for the whole show, but in particular for Cisco. I mean, this man was a widower, right? We meet him, and he's a widower, a single father, and all of a sudden revered as uh, an elite figure in uh, in in an alien race's religion. It's kind of a lot of stuff to deal with.
1: Yeah. And of course, that's all down to the advent of serialized storytelling on television.
2: Well, I think it's why some people who love Star Trek didn't quite like um, Deep Space Nine as much. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. plenty of people who love Deep Space Nine, and I'm one of them. Um, sure. But it's a it's a different sort of Star Trek. And oh, yeah. uh, from I mean, I love Kirk. I say, you know, he's my guy. He was just I don't know. He's, he's just always been my guy. I don't know. Cisco's sort of more fun to write because there's just so much more going on. He's a widower, and then he gets remarried, and he's, he was a yeah. single father, and now he's got a. And now in the book, she's now he's also got a daughter, and, and, and now he's back on a starship, and he, all sorts of things going on with Cisco. And that's that just, I don't know. I, I just really enjoy writing him. And I like, you know, I actually, though I haven't wrote, written him anywhere near as much as I've written Cisco, Harriman's a great deal of fun, too, because he's different than a lot of the other captains.
1: Well, now that we've reached the end of the show, you will receive a commission at the rank of ensign. What department on the ship would you work in?
2: I, I would have to say command, though um, my, my second choice, very close, would be sciences. Sure. Maybe I would like to command a science vessel. Okay. So um, I have a, a, a strong scientific background.
1: Combine those two things. How do you think people get their start in command when you're an ensign? Are you just getting people coffee? Do you start off as a yeoman or something like that?
2: I'm going to answer the question from a practical uh, point of view sure. uh, rather than sort of, because I, 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 in my life, I've just noticed that most people are not leaders. There are people who are sort of natural leaders who just take over situations, and I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, they they don't mind having responsibility thrust upon them about being accountable for things, about right. telling people what to do uh, in a good way, you know, trying to get a job accomplished. And, you know, and... Being willing and able to do things themselves, and I think that must happen in Starfleet. Uh, uh, just trying, I look at it from a practical standpoint. That um, I mean, as an ensign, I, they must. I don't know. They must give them responsibilities um, to demonstrate their leadership qualities. Whether they maybe think they have them, and then decide that they no, this is not that. That's not for them. You know, it's interesting because you get characters on Star Trek like Spock who, and Riker who kind of profess time and again, they don't want to be captain. Hmm. And there, I think there are a lot of people like that in real life, although they might not say that they don't want to be in charge, but I think a lot of people don't want to be in charge, um, and not for any other reason than... It doesn't satisfy them. Maybe because they they know they wouldn't be good at it, or they can't handle the pressure, or any number of other reasons. And it's not a negative thing. It's it's good if you know yourself and you know hey, hey here's a position that I don't belong in. Um, right, right. So uh, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question.
1: Yeah, I'd say sort of. We've talked about Riker before on the show and about how there's this constant sort of ongoing bit with him where he, he you know, he wants command, but he seems reluctant to take it. You know, he has the opportunity to transfer to the ships or, or whatever it is. And, you know, what's holding him back? And I don't think, sadly, the series kind of ends before they really get a chance to uh, attack that, I think. They attack
2: it a little bit in the books, at least in mm-hmm. so far as in the books, he now is in command of the USS Titan. Sure. But, you know, when you watch in the series, obviously, it's, again, one of those things that might be an artifact of the writing rather than a conscious, uh, you know, plot device used in the writing, which is that, obviously, they're not going to put Riker on another ship and start, and during the, the seven season of Star <laughs> right. Trek Next Generation. He's one of the freaking cast members. So they're right. not going to do right. that. But here's a dramatic situation. You can put him in. How do you get him out of that so he doesn't leave the ship? Well, oh, I don't want command. I sort right. of always interpreted that is, as I don't want command right now under these circumstances. I'm happy where I'm at, and sure. I don't want to leave these people. I mean, there's the episode where, you know, I guess the best of both worlds, where he says, you know, where Troy says, look, you're comfortable here. Yeah, maybe too comfortable. She's like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> right? right? And it's like, <laughs> it's just something you say, right? But... There may be some truth to that too. Um, and so he, they were trying to fit a plot. It uh, was trying to fit a character around a plot device, which is we yeah. could be losing Riker, but of course we're never really going to. So how do we make the character? How do we mold him in a way that that you know we serve the dramatic story but don't lose the character? I, it's it's it would have been more interesting to me, I think, if he said he, at some point we actually dis- discerned that he really would not be a good captain. But of course he doesn't play like that because he really is Picard's right hand and he's in charge of a sure. lot of stuff, so he, it, it seems like he would be a capable commanding
1: officer. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe that's something that will be explored in the upcoming Star Trek Discovery, because, of course, our central character is supposedly going to be an executive officer and not a commander, and a lot of fans theorize that, you know, she may be taking control of the ship or be thrust into that command position as the show goes on. Mm Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining me, Ianson George, to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at, at eistpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page. Where can people find you online?
2: All sorts of places. I would start at drgiii. That's for my David R. George III. drgiii.com. Um, that's my website. Uh, I'm also on. Facebook, uh, Facebook slash Facebook slash drgiii. I'm on Twitter. I think that's David R George. I I am on Instagram. David R George. I I'm on Tumblr. I'm all over the place. Twitter. All over the place. Anyway, <laughs> all these places. Anything
1: you can tell us about your upcoming novel?
2: Well, it'll be out in. It's a January book, which means it'll be out end of December. It's called Original Sin, and mm-hmm. it will feature Captain Cisco, which I think has not. Been made public quite yet, and I hope my editor doesn't hear this and kill me. But that's the way it is.
1: I take no responsibility. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, thanks again for joining me. Thank you
2: so much. I really enjoyed it.
1: Me too. We are signing off until the next mission, hailing frequencies closed.